from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Robert White on July 3, 2017. Bob completed his undergraduate education in agriculture at the University of Saskatchewan in 1972, but the orientation to controlling nature for economic ends was dissonant with his own life experience of relating to the natural world. In response, he traveled around the world for two years searching to develop his own understanding of humanity's relationship to nature. During his travels, he met Richard St. Barb Baker, who was known as the Man of the Trees, and Bob felt an inner calling to understand St. Barb Baker's grand vision of a cooperative relationship with the earth. His intellectual inquiry and St. Barb Baker's influence led him to embrace the Baha'i faith in 1982. I started the interview by asking Bob where he grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up on a farm in Saskatchewan on the edge of the prairies transition to the forest zone. It was a traditional mixed farm with really uh, at the start when I was born we still used horses, horsepower, and we had uh, livestock. Did a lot of big gardens and harvested wild fruit and cultivated fruit and was much more of a lifestyle of self-sufficiency. And it was fairly isolated, 25 miles from the nearest city, town. We had a local post office, a hall, and a United Church. And everybody went to the United Church. That was just the only church there, and whether... If a lot of people were Catholics, or they grew up in Eastern Europe, and they would have been Orthodox. Everyone went to the church. It was just part of the community. In summer, we'd go to uh, summer camp for a week and, you know, learn the basic Bible stories. But it was much more like part of the just the community. So it sounds like this church that was in your town was almost non-denominational. You could say that, yeah. And like I say, it wasn't a town. It was just a rural district, and that was where the post office was and, and the church and cemetery and hall for dances. Because in those he... days, we made our own entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> and then I assume you left that area when you went to university? I actually left that area for a period earlier in when I was eight years old. My father had died. My mom with four children remarried and we moved to a small town. And my stepfather was Pentecostal, so I went to a Pentecostal church for a while and then eventually we moved back to the farm. But by that time, the farms were growing bigger and we no longer had a local uh, ministry and church. So did that religious life growing up inform your spiritual path into adulthood? Well, it gave a basic floor, I guess you could say. 
but when I went to university to study agriculture in 1968, I really didn't have a religious outlook, except that I didn't quite take to the very materialistic perspective that I was taught in agricultural college. And that was partly just the fact that in my own spiritual sense of connection to the land, through being on a mixed farm, through being in an area with lots of natural woodlands, through gardening, which for me was a very intimate relationship to nature, the attitude of control and analysis of nature and looking at it from the outside, as I was learning in the science of agriculture, didn't quite fit for me. So I was already, questions were growing in my mind about scientific materialism, I guess, that perspective that we're just isolated creatures here by chance and we have this world of resources to explore and exploit. What was your journey that took you to the Baha'i faith? Well, those questions that I had at university culminated in a decision when I graduated, and I, I did very well at college, I've got a lot of awards, a decision to travel. I had a friend that I'd worked with one summer who is doing graduate studies in Australia. I worked for the summer of 1972 after I graduated, and then in the fall of 72, I set out for Australia. Well, first of all, encountering Aboriginal community in Australia, being exposed to a little bit of their mythology and worldview, really opened my eyes to the fact that I had grown up adjacent to Indigenous people, but it never had any understanding of them. They were totally isolated from the Western society on reserves, growing up with a lot of prejudices against them, in fact. And when I discovered the Australian Aboriginals, I was fascinated by their worldview, and that began to open my eyes, and plus traveling and staying in youth hostels and meeting people from all over the world. After a year in Australia, I came back to Canada traveling overland, from uh, Kathmandu to uh, London, particularly in India, where I was exposed to many different religions, I was faced with the question, how come what I was taught growing up in Sunday school about Jesus being the way, the only way, how could that be true when there were civilizations like Hindu civilization that went back thousands of years? So that really raised my questioning about cultural conditioning and opened this whole box of how I could make sense of it all. And on that journey as well, before I had left, I had won a scholarship at the, well, it wasn't really a scholarship, it was a prize called the Men of the Trees Prize. I earned it when I graduated in the spring of 1972. And that prize was set up by a man named Richard St. Barr Baker. I didn't know anything about him, but the name of the prize and the name of the donor were intriguing to me. So uh, I obtained an address for him from the University Awards Office. I wrote a thank you letter, 
As it turned out, the address wasn't correct and the letter came back. And it came back uh, around September and I just readdressed it, got a new address and forwarded it on. And in the letter I was saying I was planning on traveling. And at that point I wasn't even sure which direction I was going to go, through England first or through Australia first. Anyway, after I was in Australia, my mom told me by letter that this man had phoned her from England, that he really wanted me to visit him when I got to England. That was Richard St. Barr Baker. So when I got to England in May of 1974, I phoned him up from London, cut the train to this town that he was living at, about an hour's ride from London. He welcomed me at the door and come in, my dear boy, and he started telling me his life story. During that weekend, he had mentioned the Baha'i faith. He was a Baha'i, had been a Baha'i since the 1920s, but he didn't talk much about it. It was just part of his life. And then what was your path that caused you to investigate it further? Well, coming back to Canada after two years of travel, I was in culture shock trying to make sense of all those questions that had been raised in my travels, coming back to a very materialistic society. I started working for the University of Saskatchewan, where I had studied. turned out that my supervisor knew someone who lived across the backyard from his place who was kind of into the same kind of values that I had been talking about, ecological self-sufficiency and gardening and so on. And he introduced me to him. His name was David Van Vliet. And he was a Baha'i. But I still didn't explore the faith with him. In spring of 1976, I was planning to leave for the Yukon to work for the summer. My, my work was going to northern Canada to do survey of land and soils for development of possible agricultural lands. But it gave me... Uh, space in which to kind of be on the edge of civilization, if you like, <laughs> mm. and be close to nature and, and also indigenous cultures in the north. And who should show up just a day or two before I was to leave for the Yukon, but Richard St. Barr Baker. He came back to Saskatchewan because it was his alma mater as well. He had graduated from the university here in 1913. He was in the second class attending the university at that point, so a very small beginning for the university. He had come back because he had received an honorary doctorate in 1971, and that's the time when he set up his prize that I had won. So he contacted me, and his modus operandi was to contact the president's office where he had an in from having had an honorary doctorate. So he uh, was able to locate me, and I escorted him around the university for a day. And then I went to the Yukon to work for the summer. We had hired students from several different provinces to join us because each province in Western Canada was sponsoring a student to go north. The student we had hired from British Columbia was a Baha'i. His name was Peter. I really enjoyed working with him because he would discuss philosophical questions. And he mentioned being a Baha'i. It was his attitude to life that really uh, stood out because we were living in a bush camp. Every day when we'd go out in the field, one student would stay behind and do the cooking and do dishes. 
And living together and working together often created frictions. We had to haul water, fill the uh, tank and the, the cook trailer. You know, Peter was the person who would always go the second mile to do whatever needed to be done. And then when I got on the plane to come back from the Yukon to Saskatoon, he gave me a book called God Loves Laughter. And in the uh, preface page, he had written, to Robert, love Peter. That was very unusual for me to hear another man express love. When I got back to my office, there was another book sitting on my desk, The Divine Art of Living, that Richard St. Barr Baker had left after being with me in the spring. And then the thing was, I was just coming back to my office to pack up to set off to Toronto to do my master's. So both these books got packed away. And it wasn't until um, a year later when I was going through a personal crisis that I um, unpacked these books and started to read and started to cry because I had realized that both these men had felt love for me and had gifted me and were giving me something that spoke to me, particularly when I read God Loves Laughter. And that search of William Sears, which involved much skepticism, as a result of that, I made some contact with the Baha'i community in Toronto. But the space I was in, you know, when I went to a fireside, they were kind of talking about love in a very idealistic way. I had just had a relationship breakup. That was my crisis. And so I didn't really identify with the lofty picture of love that was described. So it took yet another dose of, uh, <laughs> of Baha'is appearing on my doorstep. Twice more. So in 1979, Richard St. Barr Baker showed up in Toronto again, unbeknownst to me, and I'm at this conference as a volunteer. The conference is really on uh, holistic health and, and healing in the broadest sense. And who should be on the speaker roster but Richard St. Barr Baker speaking about health and trees, and he asked me to introduce him. So I did, and then he took me to uh, visit some place where he was staying, which was with Baha'is. And then off he went uh, on his continuous travels around the world, now approaching 90 years old. It wasn't until the fall of 1981 that I received a letter from him from New Zealand. I had sent him a copy of my um, master's thesis in that I had mentioned him in the dedication. Part of the subject of my thesis was looking at this whole area of ecological consciousness, uh, deep ecology, those fields that, that opened up to me. I was in a program called Environmental Studies. So he asked me to write a paper on this subject for him because he wanted to convince the University of Saskatchewan to set up a chair of deep ecology. And of course, I was kind of naive at that time about how these things are done. And I knew a little bit about him by then, knew he had kind of a, an ability to just show up at the right place at the right time. You know, that's been his whole life and how he had met Franklin Delano Roosevelt before his ascendancy to the presidency and how he had showed up to help establish the Civilian Conservation Corps and how he'd helped with the Redwoods and how he'd done this and done that. So I wrote this and when I was writing it, I felt, well, there's something going on here. He's, I'm doing this for him, but there's something I'm just doing it for myself. He's helping me to understand something. In the spring of 1982, uh, you'd also asked me in the letter to meet him in back in Saskatoon, and he wanted to meet all the recipients of the Men of the Trees Prize, which uh, I had been the first recipient of 
and he was coming here for convocation after being at the Redwoods for the dedication of a United Nations heritage site that he had worked on back in the 1930s to preserve. So all this convergence of events, I wrote the paper, I sent it to him, and then I got a postcard saying that he was delayed, that he was ill. The ticket I had brought to come to Saskatoon in May was non-refundable, so I thought, well, that's the end of the story. But then I had a dream, and in the dream, St. Barbaker died. I was telling this to another mentor of mine, earlier professor that I'd had at the University of Saskatchewan, and I woke up crying as I was telling him that St. Barbara died. I had a second dream. The theme was the movie The Godfather. I had been looking a little bit at dreams and Jungian interpretation of dreams, so I recognized some fact that this Godfather connection to St. Barb, and I made a decision after that to buy a ticket to uh, meet St. Barb at the time that he expected to be in Saskatoon, which was to be June 5th. 1982, and he wanted to plant a tree for World Environment Day at the University of Saskatchewan. So I arrived in Saskatoon. I went up to the farm. My mom was still living at the farm. I was sort of questioning, like, how did I get here, and, you know, what am I doing? Then I got to Saskatoon uh, on the evening of June 4th. I connected with David Van Vliet. He was helping to arrange the tree planting. The morning of June 5th, we had agreed to uh, get together to take St. Barb to the tree planting site at the university, and it was pouring rain. And we were thinking, well, how are we going to do this? It's uh, He's in a wheelchair. You know, he'd just arrived here. He'd been in bed since he got here to Saskatoon, and he'd had to have oxygen on the plane. We decided, well, we talked to St. Barb, and he said, go ahead. We packed him in the car, went up to the university, just as we were kicking him out of the car, it started to break up. The sun came out. The Baha'i community had arranged this tree planting. The university had provided the tree. Unbeknownst to St. Barb and us, it was not just a little seedling. It was a fairly large tree and a tree spade. <laughs> David Van Vliet asked me to speak a little bit at this tree planting ceremony. As I spoke, I felt something mysterious happening inside of me. It was like connection to this series of events. It was beyond my rational understanding. And here I was speaking about interconnectedness. What I had learned from all my studies, that, every, that everything is connected to everything else. Yet, from a scientific point of view of ecology, human beings still stand outside of that connection, looking at it analytically. But here, because of these mysterious connections of dreams and uh, coincidences, I was feeling that connection was also in my psyche. So the tree planting happened. Children blessed the tree as he was wont to do with uh, the blessing that St. Barb had developed for a little organization that he had helped start a few years earlier called the Children of the Green Earth. And it has body emotions, but it goes from our hearts with our hands for the earth, all the world together. That sums up a philosophy that I really uh, identified with. We got St. Barb bundled up in the car, and as we were driving across the bridge to take him back to his residence, storm clouds gathered and it started to rain. He said to us in the car on the way over the bridge as we were crossing the river, he said, if I die while I'm here in Saskatoon, I want to be buried along the banks of Saskatchewan overlooking the university. 
So uh, St. Barb had decided that he was going to go on to Toronto and stay with a community that he knew there. He knew all kinds of spiritual communities all around the world. And this community uh, was about an hour outside of Toronto, and it was an intentional community. I had been to this community before, and they were very into ecological gardening and so on. They knew him from before, and they were going to nurse him. So uh, our plan was to leave on Wednesday, June 9th, four days after the tree planting. So in that interim period, I was spending time with David Van Vliet and some of the other Baha'is that met, but still not really exploring what Baha'i is. Just they're interesting people and seem to have uh, values that I resonate with. And then on the morning of June 9th, as I was readying St. Barb to get dressed to go to the airport, as I said, he had been mostly in bed. And actually, uh, even before that uh, morning, he had asked me to massage his legs because of bed sores. And that was an intimacy that I was not used to. But on the morning of the 9th, as we were uh, getting prepared, he died in, in our arms. Within an hour or two, members of the Baha'i Spiritual Assembly were coming by, and they were all very calm about it and talking about death in a very positive way and this transition to the spiritual realm. And I wasn't used to thinking about death that way. They told me, of course, if you want to just catch your flight and continue on, you go ahead. But I decided I, I just needed to stay, and I stayed for the funeral. And the Baha'i community asked me to speak at the funeral. I had been asked to speak on the provincial radio, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation uh, radio for Saskatchewan, about St. Barb. At the funeral, I expanded on this theme of oneness and my connection to St. Barb. turned out that the burial was at this cemetery, which wasn't right on the banks of the, the river, but was a, at a higher elevation than the area between the cemetery and the river so that one could stand on this cemetery. And this spot that it opened up just turned out because they moved a crypt. And it was under a tall tree, which was the other requirement that he had stated. He wanted to be buried under a tall tree. So there he was, uh, buried under this tall tree, and you could see the university from that spot. So all these things in my dream and what he had requested about being buried. I went back to Toronto, and the next morning I was going on my way to Blur Street United Church, where I had been going for a while. I was walking down the street, and it was like the trees were talking to me. I mean, that sounds crazy, but it was like they were saying to me, you, you don't need to go to that church anymore. Gradually, that openness that I had experienced with the dream in the spring continued, I guess I would say. I had more dreams, and I read those two books <laughs> again, and I realized that I was searching, and I decided to come back to Saskatoon in July of that year, a month after. This time, I rifled through the Baha'i bookshelves <laughs> of David when he wasn't looking, <laughs> started reading Baha'u'llah's words. Another Baha'i that had met invited me to come down to this town where he lived, and there was a tree nursery there. Spent time at this tree nursery. While I was there, I decided, well, uh, I'll apply for work here. I went back to Toronto after that. I had another dream, and I decided, well, this is enough. I think I'm being pursued. I went to uh, a Baha'i fireside, pretending I didn't know anything about the Baha'i faith, 
asked a bunch of questions, whereas I just had, well, why should I have religion? I resonate with these ideas. I can see they're the spirit of the age, but, you know, I don't need religion. That was my basic question. And they said, well, maybe the religion needs you. Maybe there's a role for you. Maybe there's a larger picture here. So I thought, well, this does make sense. And so I signed up to be a Baha'i. And two months later, I got that job. I ended up working for the Prairie Farm Rehabilitation Administration, uh, planting trees. <laughs> Why do you think, in your journey to understand the human relationship to nature, that you kept running into Baha'is in that journey? That's a good question. Is there something about the Baha'i faith and nature that caused you to run into Baha'is through your experience in discovering what you see as the human relationship with nature? Yes, two or three parts to that. I mean, one is when my travels, I really realized that there's a real global problematique. I mean, even when I was growing up on the farm and loved gardening, and I could see how much we could grow in terms of vegetables, I wondered why people were starving in India at that time. So the Baha'i perspective on uh, global interdependence and global solutions and justice spoke to me, that those had to be part of the equation. As I was later to learn, uh, I mean, some of the writings that allude to nature being part of the revelation of God's uh, attributes, that spoke to me, and I later went on to explore that area and write about that area. The Baha'is that I had met, like uh, David Van Vliet, Paul Hanley, and St. Barb, had all, I guess, an early sense of that. The Baha'i writings really brought a sense of wholeness to this experience that we're now in as feeling separate and alienated from nature. But in the longer journey evolutionary perspective, which the Baha'i perspective on religion brings, uh, that's been part of the human journey. We're in this adolescent phase of development. Alienation and separation is part of that adolescence. The promise of wholeness that is in earlier scriptures is more prominent in the Baha'i writings, that we are searching for that wholeness and we will find it. Now, you're on the faculty of the Wilmette Institute. Could you explain to folks what the Wilmette Institute is and what your role is in that institute? Yeah, the Wilmette Institute, I first came across it in uh, the late 1990s when Robert Stockman invited me there to give a series of lectures to uh, a residential course that took place for three weeks there each summer. Since that time, they've developed dozens of really hundreds of different courses, and it brought in faculty from all around the world and allowed people with different specialties to develop courses. I was invited by Paul Hanley, who uh, is uh, a colleague here in Saskatoon and a Baha'i. It's kind of parallel to me in his thinking. Uh, he had focused more on agriculture, but he had written a, a paper on agriculture in the Baha'i faith. And later I wrote a paper called Spiritual Foundations for an Ecologically Sustainable Society, which brought together some of the ideas that I just referred to in terms of how the Baha'i writings address environmental problem as a whole. 
So he invited me to be a, a member of a faculty for this course, along with two other people that I also know from Saskatoon. This course on agriculture and the Baha'i faith attracted people that are from all various corners of the world that are interested in this area, and I didn't realize there were so many people that have this keen interest. Some people may be working on farms, some people may be exploring the idea of working in that field, some people have worked in Africa or to various parts of the world as agricultural development officers. As faculty, we were allowed to be mentors for some 40 students. Now we've refined our course and are offering it again being in July, but there are courses on relationships, on marriage, on different specialized fields of how Islam and the Baha'i faith, different Baha'i writings themselves. This whole mystical dimension, which I was just barely cognizant of when I had those dreams and those synchronicities back in 1982, has really been an area of much stronger interest in recent years, and I really believe that that mystical connection, our connection to nature, our connection to God, that experience, that inner experience, and becoming conscious of it is really what I see in so many people in our society looking for, but don't know how to find it. And they're reluctant to find it within religion, like I was. <laughs> so what advice do you have for those kinds of folks, being from where you traveled from, having a similar attitude at one time? Well, you really have to trust your heart. One's heart will lead you. If you don't recognize the signs, they'll just keep coming back to you and hitting you over the head until you do. <laughs> so I think you just really need to pray with sincerity or ask. If prayer is even too fancy a word, just ask. I want answers to my search for what is true and meaningful and allows me to feel most connected and most of service to the world. So, Robert, I want to thank you so much for describing your journey for us. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Robert White, a holistic agriculturalist who sees the cooperative relationship between humans and the earth. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Then they shall see the glory of the Lord. Then the prophet Isaiah goes on to say they shall see the light. Then they shall see the light. Laying down with the lamb. South, the east, and the west, they'll be gathered around the throne. Oh, they'll see them marching all together up the mountain on the king's highway to Zion.
walking hand. Just have abandoned the physical garment and have ascended to the spiritual world. May our love guide you.
When righteousness is weak and faints, and unrighteousness exalts in pride, then my spirit arises on earth. For the salvation of those who are good, for the destruction of evil in men, for the fulfillment of the kingdom of righteousness, I come to this world. From age to age. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. To order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth, even forever. of the religion of the Arabian and the overthrow of the kingdom of Iran and the degradation of the followers of my religion. A descendant of the Iranian kings will be raised up as a prophet. shall I be the last. In due time, another Buddha will arise in the world, a holy one, a supremely enlightened one, endowed with wisdom in conduct, auspicious, knowing the universe, an incomparable leader of men, a master of angels and mortals. He will reveal to you the same eternal truths which I have taught you. He will preach his religion, glorious at the goal, in the spirit and in the letter. He will proclaim a religious life, holy, perfect, and pure, such as I now proclaim. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Glory, the glory of God, 
And in the Holy Qur'an, God says, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. His light is like a niche in which is a lamp. The lamp encased in glass, the glass as it were, a brilliant star, lit from a blessed tree, an olive, of neither the east nor of the west, whose oil is beginning to burst into light, though no fire has touched it. Light upon light, God guideth whomsoever he willeth to his light, and of all things God is knowing. Come 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.